you have your Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Last Sunday, we covered the tail end of the Lord's Prayer, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you're a visitor or you're new here, uh, we are not skipping any verses. Verses 14 through, through 18 about forgiveness and about fasting, we actually covered back in October and November. So if you want to go back and look at those sermon, sermons from back then. But today we're skipping ahead to our new passage, which is verses 19 through 21. So Matthew 6, starting in verse 19, I'm going to read uh, this brief passage and then I'll pray for us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, if it is certainly true that every single one of us in this room struggles with worldliness to a degree, with a preoccupation with the things of this world that can become unhealthy and even sinful. Lord, the heavenly world is not something we can see with our eyes, which makes it very tempting to live for what we can see physically. But God, help us to fix our eyes not on what is seen right now, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary and transient, does not last. But what is unseen is eternal. And one day what is unseen will be, see, will be seen. Faith will become sight, and the new creation and the resurrection will occur. And we in that moment will wonder why we did not live more for the world to come than we did. So help us, Lord, not to give in to that temptation, but to flee from it and to live for what is eternally significant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My sermon today just has an introduction and two points. I'll go ahead and give you those for those who are interested in the structure. Um, after the introduction, the, the two points are simply this. Point number one, Jesus is not teaching ultimate self-denial in this passage. Jesus is not teaching ultimate self-denial. He certainly teaches self-denial, not ultimate self-denial. And point number two, Jesus is teaching us to live for true and lasting treasure. So again, Jesus is not teaching ultimate self-denial, point number one. Point number two, Jesus is teaching us to live for true and lasting treasure. Now, since it's been a while since we really were looking at the Sermon on the Mount and we, had, we took a break for a sermon series, uh, I want to just remind you of something. And this can be hard to do in spoken form. It's easier to read this than to say it, but I'm going to try to say it to you now. So if, if you have your Bible open with Matthew 5 and 6 nearby, I want to just remind you of a few things. What we've looked at a few months ago was that Matthew 5 verses 1 uh, through 16 is really an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. You have the Beatitudes about the inward nature, being humble and mourning over sin and hungering for God's righteousness and being peacemakers and merciful and joy, joyous in, in persecution for, for righteousness' sake. And then God's, Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, 
ultimately preserving from decay and bringing the, the, the pleasant taste of the gospel and also the light of the world, bringing light to the dark world that we live in with the truth of the gospel. And then Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20 is sort of like a thesis statement. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Jesus says, listen, I am not lawless like I have been accused. I'm not throwing out the Old Testament. I'm actually the one coming to fulfill every single pen stroke of the Old Testament law. I'm not throwing it out. I am fulfilling it. I'm going to fulfill the law. And verse 20, I've argued, and others have argued, is the thesis statement for the whole Sermon on the Mount. That Matthew 5.20 is the thesis statement that is backed up by the entire sermon. Let me reread it. Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I always need to say, this is not teaching, nor did Jesus ever teach salvation by works. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, the mark of a true believer is that your righteousness is not merely external, like it was for the Pharisees, a show, but that your righteousness comes from within. And that your righteousness exceeds the… I mean, how does your personal righteousness exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? These are the most meticulous obeyers of the Old Testament you can imagine. And you, if, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, your practical, personal, actual righteousness, not imputed righteousness of Jesus, which we believe in, but is not being taught in this verse, unless your personal righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you cannot enter heaven. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, your righteousness cannot be hypocrisy or a show. The outward acts of piety and devotion cannot be out there for the praise of man as the motive. They have to be coming from within. And the whole Sermon on the Mount from the beginning to the end is about your outward acts of righteousness being in conformity with your inward devotion to the Lord. Not a false motive, but a genuine motive. If you look throughout the sermon, the hypocrite… Now, now stop for a second. The, the word hypocrite comes from the word play actor in the, in the Greek. Someone who puts on a false face as an actor. The, the word hypocrite today, when, you, when we use the word, and it's not wrong to use it this way. The Bible certainly does use it this way. We, we will speak of someone who says things like, don't lie, and then they turn around and lie. Right? That's a hypocrite. Someone says, don't gossip, and then an hour later, they're slandering and gossiping about someone. That, that, that's what we think. That certainly is hypocrisy. But what Jesus is talking about in this sermon is not mainly that kind of hypocrisy. He's not so much talking about Pharisees who said you should tithe and then didn't tithe, or who said you should pray and then who did not pray. No, the Pharisees did tithe, and they did pray, and they did do outward acts of devotion that kind of boggle the mind. But the hypocrisy Jesus is really strongly opposing in this sermon is the hypocrisy between the outward self and the inward self. It's the person who consistently does right outward deeds, but their inward motive is corrupt to the core. They are doing them to be seen by others and for the glory they get from men and women, but not the glory from God. That's the hypocrisy that this sermon is most fundamentally uh, opposing. Now, if you remember, in the rest of chapter 5 is the first section of the sermon, and you remember each section begins, you can see the sins if you have headings, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love your enemies. Every single one, Jesus says something like, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing is He's not 
contradicting the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I'm here to fulfill the Old Testament, and a lot of people you know are twisting the Old Testament to try to get away with things that they should not get away with. And he gives six examples. And then we moved into chapter 6, the next part of the sermon. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, so through our text today, is the next major portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And I have to tell you, I've read the Sermon on the Mount just like you probably have. We've read it many times. I had never noticed how incredibly well-structured this part is. If you, if you look through it and highlight different words, what you see over and over throughout this section is Jesus gives three examples. And what He says is, I'll give the, just look at verse uh, 2. Therefore, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, have you noticed Jesus says the exact same thing about prayer in the next paragraph? Don't do it publicly to be seen, do it in the private room so that God sees in secret. He'll reward you. And then fasting, verses 16 to 18. Don't fast to be seen, fast in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you know how many times the word reward is used in Matthew 6, 1 to 21? The word is used over and over and over again. And Jesus is focusing in this passage today on treasure or heavenly rewards. The thesis of chapter 6, if you look at verse 1, let me re- read this one more time. Here's kind of the thesis of 6, 1 to 21, the introductory comment. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Well, what does this have to do with our passage today? Let's reread today's passage, 19 to 21, and just replace in your head. Think, reward, now he's using the word treasure. He was speaking about your heavenly Father rewarding you, and now he's going to talk about your rewards in heaven. These are not different things. These are, I think, the same things. And let's, let's read it together. I'll read it for us, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me me say one more introductory comment. I know this can get a little hard to follow, but just hang with me on this last introductory comment about structure. I'm convinced, and others have made this argument, but I'm convinced that 19 to 21 serves as the conclusion to the first half of chapter 6, and also the introduction to the rest of the sermon. And here's why I say that. There are things in this little paragraph that link this section to what came before and what comes after. And if that, if you say, what does that mean? Here's what I mean. Do you see the theme of rewards either on earth or in heaven running through the first 18 verses? You either fast for earthly reward, which is no real reward, a compliment that's fleeting, or you fast to be seen by God, heavenly reward. You either give for earthly compliments and rewards or you give secretly so that your Father will reward. Or uh, you pray in secret or publicly. Which one? To, to be rewarded by men or to be rewarded by God? And that ties in with treasure in heaven. But this also introduces the rest of the chapter, which is all about worry about earthly things, like clothes 
and earthly treasures and money and savings. And oh, am I going to have enough money for these things? The anxiety and stresses of life. This section also introduces to the sermons that are coming, Lord willing, on future Sundays. So all that is introduction. Now let's, let's move into the, into the first point. Jesus teaches, Jesus is not teaching ultimate self-denial in this passage. You know, it's interesting. You wouldn't put these two groups together. You have sort of the secular materialist, someone who just lives for the world, lives for pleasure, lives for riches, lives for their job, their career, their money, success in the world's terms, a secular materialist on one side, and then you have the religiously devout Pharisee or scribe. You can't get much more different, can you, than the religiously devout Pharisee and the secular materialist. And yet, they're basically, at the bottom, committing the same sin. Did you ever think about that? At the bottom, they're both living for the rewards of this life rather than the rewards of the next life. The materialist is living for the physical material rewards of this life that will be gone one day soon. Moth and rust destroy. Inflation steals away, does it not? It just goes in this life. And you can't take it with you. You, you die and it is gone. We, we were, I think I mentioned this a while back, but we were reading with my son the story of King Tut. And they discovered all that gold for, I think he was 18 years old, the Egyptian uh, young pharaoh or king. And they found his place and they, they, they were uncovered all these incredible treasures. Well, guess what? They had been sitting there untouched for thousands of years. The seal to the door had not even been broken in thousands of years. When the door was open, the scent of the aromas that were placed there were still fresh in the air after more than 3,000 or 4,000 whatever years it had been. That's astonishing. But the most astonishing thing is the treasure was still there. King Tut buried with all this gold and all these, these priceless things, they were just sitting there for thousands of years because we cannot take with us the treasures of this life. But the religious hypocrite or the Pharisee has the same problem. The person living to show off their Bible knowledge in this life or to show off how devout they are in this life, to win compliments and praise and approval. Give me that glory. It's one commentator said, the glory of man is like a drug. We never can have enough, but it is so addictive. The more we taste of it, the more we want. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure, as one writer said. It's a powerful drug, human adulation and approval and people speaking well of us. And yet that is fleeting And Jesus said, if that's what we're living for, that reward is all you have. You will not receive reward from your Father in heaven that lasts forever. But Jesus is not ultimately against self-denial. Now, let me just say at the very beginning, I think it's incredibly obvious to all of us, but just in case I be misunderstood. The Bible is not, Jesus is not saying that planning for retirement is a sin. He's not saying that having a savings account is a sin. He's not saying having life insurance policy, if you were to, to, to die suddenly, is, is a sin. Caring for your family and for your children is not what Jesus is saying is a wrong thing to do here. I think that's obvious. I'll read a couple verses. You don't have to turn to these. First Timothy 5, 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Or... Verse 8 of 1 Timothy 5, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Clearly, caring for the physical needs of those around us and especially in our family and our church is a wonderful thing. We should be wise about how we use our money. Jesus is not denying those things. People sometimes misrepresent what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is still quite devastating. 
what he's really getting at here. This passage, I'm going to read a long C.S. Lewis quote. You may have heard his book. It's a collection of essays called The Weight of Glory, named after that first essay. And I'm sure some of you have heard the first page of that essay, but I'm going to read a good bit of the first page. I think he hits it on the money. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself, as the final goal. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, this, this part is just phenomenal. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, that is for happiness, not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And then Lewis continues. I'm going to go a little longer here. Listen to this. He says, we must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward living for reward, being motivated by our own reward before the Lord, does this make us guilty of being mercenary? Remember the word mercenary, like a soldier that's paid to fight a battle he doesn't really care about, right? A mercenary? Listen to this. Lewis does a great job explaining this. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. That's not right, right? That's mercenary. You, you act like you love someone, but you really are trying to get something else from them. That's mercenary. Don't do that. No, marriage is the proper reward for real love. Marriage is the proper reward for real uh, love. And a man is not a mercenary for desiring the reward of marriage when he loves a woman. You see, the reward of marriage is intimately tied to the love he has for that woman. Therefore, it is, it's right, it, it is right to seek that. Or a general who fights well in order to get a higher rank in the military, is mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. The, now listen, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but they are the activity itself in its consummation. In other words, when Jesus is offering us rewards in the Gospels, Whatever all that will exactly look like in eternity, it must be intimately linked to our knowing and enjoying the triune God, ultimately. In other words, if I love God and the Lord tells me that even though I don't deserve it, He's going to reward every good deed I do as a believer and every good deed you do as a believer, if that is true, and I believe that is in Scripture all over the place, Jesus especially teaches that, if that is true… It's not mercenary to do good deeds because of the reward, because the reward is itself part of knowing God better in eternity. And therefore, it is a legitimate thing out of a love for God to be motivated by heavenly rewards. One writer says, listen, in heaven, we will all have different sized vessels 
Or you think of cups, vessels, different sized vessels, but all the vessels will be full to capacity. But not everyone's vessel will be the same size. Right? Every vessel submerged in joy in God. Every vessel submerged in the, in the, in the knowledge of God. But not every, not every vessel the same in size. Another illustration would be, we will all have different degrees of appetite. We will all be fully satisfied, but not all of us will have the same appetite, to use a metaphor there. Or maybe another just simpler metaphor. I heard this from a professor years ago. He said, My, I think I'm getting the details right. It's been a long time since I heard him tell this story. But I think he said that his son was a recital-level piano player, like a, very, like a professional piano player. And he said, if my son and I, he said, by the way, I am no piano player, is what my professor said. My son is a professional piano player. I am not. He said, my son and I can go to the exact same piano recital of another professional musician, piano player. My son and I can sit, sit on the same row. And we could sit there for an hour while this incredible piano player plays all these songs. And my son and I can watch the exact same performance by the exact same individual. And we can both greatly appreciate and enjoy what's going on. But my professor said, but my son will have a greater appreciation for what's happening than I will. You get that, right? Those of you who've played athletics, if 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 you've played soccer for many years or whatever it might be, football or basketball or baseball or whatever it might be, if you've played for many years and trained for many years, when you watch the game with me, I have no idea what's going on, you understand better than I do. We can enjoy the same game, but you have a richer understanding of it because of what's going on. I think that gets at the idea of the heavenly rewards. We will all be maximally happy. There will be no jealousy. There will be no envy. There will be no pride about having more or less, but there will be a maximum capacity that the Lord will give us in those heavenly rewards. Now, flip with me to the right to Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to look at a couple of verses in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. one of those amazing verses. This is verse 6, where really it's giving you sort of the essence of faith. What is, what is true faith biblically? It's a great verse. Hebrews eleven six. Look at how the author defines faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. Number one, that He, the God of the Bible, exists. And number two, that He rewards those who seek Him. What is saving faith? Of course, it's tied up with the gospel of Jesus. Of course, it's tied up with His death and resurrection. But at the heart of faith is believing that the God of the Bible exists. Well, Satan believes that. And that He rewards those who seek Him. Delighting in the reward of knowing God is at the heart of saving faith. Coming to God for the reward of knowing Him better is not selfish, it's not sinful, it's faith. That's what faith is. That's what saving faith does. Look at the, uh, a little later in the chapter, verse 24. Hebrews eleven twenty-four. 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
Why did Moses give up a, a life? He, was, he lived to be 120. He had 120 years of pleasure, everything you could imagine as the adoptive son of Pharaoh. He could have done anything he wanted to. Uh, he, all the pleasures you could imagine. He gave it up, identifying with a persecuted enslaved people, leading them out, and then spending 40 years in the desert with them, and then dying before he goes into the promised land. Why would he choose to give up all those pleasures and to embrace 40 years of suffering in the wilderness? He was looking to his reward. He counted the reproach of Christ, being mocked for following the Messiah, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking to his reward in heaven. Look at Hebrews 12, 2, right nearby. Hebrews 12, verse 2. We are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. I just want to say this. I don't think this is too controversial because it's straight out of the Bible here, but Jesus went to the cross, the most loving, sacrificial act that has ever happened. And what motivated Him? His joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was his joy? I think it was two things. It was the joy ultimately of pleasing his father, honoring and glorifying his father by fulfilling the the mission that was given to him. But also, what was that mission? It was saving his bride. So the joy of saving us and honoring his father is what got him through Gethsemane and what got him through the cross. It was for the joy set before him. He was motivated by reward. It's not sinful. It's not selfish. It's Christ-like. Some of you know that uh, as a late teenager, Jonathan Edwards wrote a bunch of resolutions for himself, for his life. It's a pretty convicting list. If you've ever read it before, you can Google Jonathan Edwards resolutions. I don't remember how many there are, maybe 70 or something like that. And one of the resolutions is this. Can you believe he wrote this? I think he was 18. Listen to this. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence, not against other people, that I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. So Jesus in the Gospels, when He says, take up your cross and follow Me, be willing to die, don't store up treasures on earth, He's not arguing for ultimate self-denial. He's, ultimate, he's arguing for ultimate self-fulfillment in Himself. Does that make sense? Uh, he's, he's saying, don't, ultimately, self-sacrifice is not the, the goal here. Ultimately, what's the goal? Is fulfillment in Him. And even that means giving up earthly things on the way towards that. All right, point two. It's just two points of the sermon. Point number two, Jesus is teaching us to live for true and lasting treasure. Jesus is teaching us to, to live for true and lasting treasure. I want to read our passage one more time. I just want us to get it into our head. Matthew 6, turn back there, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do Do you hear his argument here? Jesus is saying, not so much that it's wrong to store up treasures on earth, although, of course, it is to invest in earth. What's he saying? Jesus is saying, hey, it's foolish to store up treasures on earth. It's like, have you, it's like read Ecclesiastes. 
You can accomplish all there is to accomplish. And guess what? It's like trying to capture a breeze, trying to chase after and grab hold of the wind. So you, you, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, I, I built all these vineyards, and I had all this pleasure with these various women, and I drank myself into a stupor with all this great wine that I had, and I had these parties and entertainment, all these things. I, I allowed myself to be guided to all the pleasures I, I had access to. And at the end of the day, I found out vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. Everything is vanity. In other words, it is a vapor. These things don't last. These things can't sustain. Jesus is saying, hey, this stock market is crashing Don't invest in it. In a very short time, all those stocks are going to be gone. They're going to be destroyed. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. If you live for your, for for finances in this world as an ultimate goal, again, not talking about saving and being responsible, but if you invest ultimately, this is where I'm, this is what I'm all about, is my, my finances in the here and now. If that's what you're living for, there is coming a day sooner than you think when that number on that account will be irrelevant to you because you won't be here anymore. It'd be like King Tut, you cannot take it with you. It'll just be gone. It'll go on, as Ecclesiastes says, to someone else. Remember, Ecclesiastes says, I've done all these things, made all this money, and someone after me is going to take it from me after I'm gone. I don't know if that person's going to be wise or a fool. For all I know, I've done the greatest things imaginable as a king, and there could be a fool that comes right after me and ruins everything I've done. Just, it's, it's amazing. And so we are to think here, Jesus is not trying to rob us of joy. He's trying to rob you from misery. He's saying, stop investing in what you know is going to fail. Stop investing all your money and time and thought in the things of this world that one day are going to be part of a garage sale. Don't make that your ultimate goal in life. Those things are not saying are unimportant, but it is so easy to invest too much in those things. And Jesus says, one day, those things will be gone. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves can break in and steal. Jesus says, I've got something better. It's not about guilt. It's about liberation. Jesus says, listen... I know a way for you to use your time and your money and your resources and invest them in people's lives in such a way that the reward for those things from God will never decay. It will never go away. Sharing the gospel with a friend, winning a friend to Christ over a course of months or years, the treasure, the, 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 the treasure you invest in that person, the time, that's hard to give up that time, the money that might go into it, all the investment you make, Is there going to be a reward that will never go away? There are things that we can invest in that are unbelievable in their eternal value. Let me read a quote here from uh, John Piper. I found this encouraging. Listen to this. Let me linger over this for a moment since its its applications are deep and pervasive. One of the reasons many people abandon their commitments in marriage, parenting, friendships, jobs, etc., is because we are called upon to return good for evil so often when nobody knows. Just loving someone who is not loving you back over and over, and no one sees, no one's posting about it online, about how sacrificial you've been. No one seems to even know or care, and it takes everything in you by God's grace to continue loving and forgiving and being kind. How do we sustain that kind of sacrificial love? We try to love people well, say our spouse, and you can apply this to anybody, children, friends, family, roommates, and he or she responds indifferently or negatively, maybe hundreds or even thousands of times for decades. How do you keep loving them? I'm not talking about, he says, horrific cases of abuse here. I'm talking about the kinds of disappointments, discouragements, frustrations, irritations, and regrets that 95% of us deal with in our relationships. And my point is this. 
Those hundreds or thousands of efforts to do right in the face of continual thanklessness from your child or spouse or friend or colleague are most often unnoticed by anyone on earth, but are seen and recorded by God in heaven. In ways that we cannot imagine, these small or large acts of grace will come back to us with such rewards that we will say with overflowing joy, it was worth it. Ephesians 6, 8, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. This is true no matter how many shortcomings of ours will be burned up. It is absolutely amazing, he writes. Does that encourage you? The thought, the unseen acts that we do that are some of the most difficult, the Lord sees and takes note of every sacrifice, every act of kindness. Not a cup of cold water given in my name will lose its reward. Jesus takes note. The Father keeps note of every single act we do, even the ones that seem completely invisible. And we know that for every single one, an undeserved reward of gracious ability to better know and enjoy God will be in some way granted to us in eternity. That is astonishing. Randy Alcorn has written the book, The Treasure Principle. You may have read that. It's it's sold, I think, one and a half million copies. A little book about this topic of giving for heavenly rewards. And he says, um, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's what he says in the book. By acts of kindness and by investing in things that matter, we give things up, but ultimately we send them ahead, and the Lord will make sure that there is a reward for those deeds that are coming one day in the future. Matthew Henry you may know from his wonderful commentary on the Bible from over 300 years ago. You, you may or may not know, Matthew Henry was once mugged or robbed while he was traveling somewhere. And when he got back after being robbed and they stole the money that he had, he wrote this brief prayer, which is, which is moving to think about. Matthew Henry wrote this after being, the night after he was robbed, quote, Lord, I thank you. How would my prayer have started that night? I hope it would have started that way. Lord, I thank you that I have never been robbed before. I thank you that although they took my money, they spared my life. I thank you that although they took everything, it was not much. I thank you that it was I who robbed. Excuse me. I thank you that it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. We, we know the verse in 2 Corinthians 8 9. It's one of our favorite verses around here. It comes up throughout the year. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. See, to remind us all of what we, I hope, know, by sheer grace, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He came and He died in our place. He made a way for us to gain access to God and right standing with God, not by our works, but by His works, atoning for our sin. Then He says, listen, go and do likewise. And when you and I sacrifice for others, love others well over the long haul, the Father takes note and He will reward all those deeds. Look at the last sentence here of our passage, verse 21. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I was somewhat, I'm somewhat convicted thinking about this verse, but Randy Alcorn said this. He said, people sometimes tell me, I wish I had a greater heart for missions. And Randy Alcorn said, I know how to solve that problem. Like, okay, this is interesting. He said, if you, if, you, if you don't have the heart for missions that you want, dedicate a certain amount of your money each year to go to a missionary family somewhere in the world that you trust. Just, just give them every year a certain amount of money. And he said, guess what? Where your treasure goes, guess what goes with it? What you care about travels with, what, with, with it. Where your money goes, where you invest your time and money and energy, guess what? You, your heart goes with it. So if you start investing in, in, in a ministry, suddenly you care about how the ministry is doing because you're invested in it quite literally. He says, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And so as we invest in the things that are eternal and significant, our heart becomes tied to heavenly realities, and ultimately our heart gets tied to God's uh, mission in this world. I'm going to close with one last passage. Turn with me to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16. For the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize part of it, and then I'll, I'll read the last section here. It's, it's one of those interesting parables. It's a little confusing the first time you read it, the dishonest manager. Remember this? So there's a guy who's basically the accountant for this other man who's a very rich man. The rich man finds out that the man managing his money is, is doing things that are illegal. So he tells the guy, I'm firing you. I found out that you're, that you're doing something illegal. I'm firing you. And the guy, right before he leaves, he goes and finds all the people that this rich man owes, uh, that, that owe, owe the rich man money, and he basically cuts their debt in half. He just says, okay, you owed $1,000. I'm going to make it $500. You owed $800. I'm going to make it $600. And he just cuts the debt of all these people. And this is all sinful and wrong. And then after the story, Jesus says, this guy, even though wicked and sinful, is using worldly wisdom to try to gain friends for himself so that when he loses his job and has no income, these people who he cheated and helped, he helped out, they're going to welcome him in, into their homes. They're going to be kind to this man. He said, this is a strange parable. Well, listen to Jesus' conclusion. Verse 8 of Luke 16. The master, that's the rich man, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you, entrust you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let, let me just reread verse 9. Here's the point. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, that is, in the, the money in this world doesn't mean it's inherently sinful. It's just often used that way. Make friends for yourselves by means of money, unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What does that mean? I think Jesus is saying we should use the unrighteous mammon, the money and material goods that we have in this world for other people's spiritual and eternal good as best we can. So that when the day comes when it fails and our life ends, 
the people that we won to Christ through means of our money and wealth and energy and whatever we can invest in people's souls, the people who've been won to Christ through that, guess what? They're going to welcome us into eternal dwellings because we used our material goods for what is of eternal importance and significance. And the people who are won to Christ through that, they will welcome us into heaven. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we, we, we sincerely ask for wisdom on this issue. It can be very hard to know exactly how to use whatever excess money we have in our lives. It's hard to know when is too much to spend on something and when is too little. It's hard to know when we're investing in something legitimate versus getting our hearts tangled up in true worldliness. But Lord, we will all confess that we are very easily deceived on the topic of money. This is why the Lord Jesus spoke so frequently about money. It is so easy to be deceived about how we spend the money that we have in this life. God, I pray that you would not mainly make us leave feeling guilty. Perhaps that's necessary for some of us, but I pray most of all that you would excite us about the idea of investing in eternal realities, that you would excite us about investing in others. This may be something like making a meal or being hospitable, opening our home and paying for things for people to be there and to, to love them well in that way. This may mean giving money to a missionary couple or family who's sharing the gospel with Muslim people groups on the other side of the world. It might be investing in Bibles for others. It could be anything. But God, help us to have an open hand, to be truly humble, and to truly ask, Lord, that you would help us not be deceived, but that we would know our motives and that we would invest in what is of true and eternal significance with our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.